All right, everybody. So today, back on the podcast, we have Dr. Eric Helms. How are we doing, man? Dave, I'm better now that I'm talking to you. It's been too long since episode 100. So glad to be back. Yeah, man. You know, I still actually have the recording that I reached out to you on Facebook so people don't know when I was like starting the podcast and I talked to you, Scott Stevenson, a couple of other people. And I was actually talking to you about the podcast, but also just further education in the area. And you sent me like a three minute, although Facebook at the time made you have like one minute messages. So it was three one minute messages. And like, to me, that was such a big deal at the time because you didn't know me. You know, I wasn't the huge name that I am now in the industry. So uh, you, you just kind of reached out. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, you know, for you to send that, it was very cool. So I, I do still have that saved. It's always great to talk. Well, you think that was me being altruistic, but actually what it was is I saw that your star was on the rise and I wanted to ride your coattails. So I got those, those three one-minute hooks right into the... the uh, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, I was like, I mean, at what point do I try to play my hand where he sees that I'm actually just trying to use him right. for his fame. Right. So. That's how this industry goes. So, mm -hmm. yeah. so uh, we have a charity selection today that I think we had done two times ago. And mm -hmm. uh, I'll let you just kind of explain that. And of course, I'll have a link below for anybody who also would like to donate. Yeah. So the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is uh, a charity that we've given to before uh, at Mass. We've done it for some of our charity sales. And I've also given to it personally, um, and they're a pretty highly ranked charity. If you look at, you know, the, their quality and how much they're able to give to the cause versus, you know, their own internal structure and the necessity to run things, they do really well. Um, and they do a lot of good work towards trying to prevent, obviously, uh, the occurrence of suicide. Um, so they, you know, they reach out, they have opportunities for people to get help or to reach out if someone has had experience with that among their friends or family. So I've been to an event of theirs in the past and it's something that's, that's impacted my life. And uh, so I think it's, it's, it's a great organization. I've only seen positive things and I'm very hopeful that um, they're making a positive impact. So much appreciated for having it be the, the sponsor, dude. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is a great one. And I know you guys have donated with Mass. And actually it was Greg Knuckles who turned me on to um, Peter Singer has a book, the, I think it's The Life You Can Save, uh, but it just talks about like various charities and everything, and, and you can kind of see the impact that different ones have. So I think that's mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah, man. So I was listening to one of the study reviews for Mass, and it was about showing it, the paper was talking about increasing volume for when cutting, and, mm. uh, and you were seeing red, you were super frustrated about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, but you did say that it, there was a little bit of like a pet peeve there. Right. And, and maybe so for people who, who don't know that, I mean, I can also link that study. Um, but generally they, their conclusion was like, Hey, maybe it's a good thing to increase volume while dieting. Uh, and you had some problems with that. Could you maybe elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. So first I think just big shout out to the other Eric, Dr. Trexler, who reviewed that article for mass and, um, yeah, it was one that I knew one of us was going to review it. It's definitely in both of our wheelhouses. And he did a fantastic job with it. And I remember back to peer review, my main comments, and actually shout out to Mike Zerdos as well. His main comments was that there was a really unclear distinction between comparing higher volume to lower volume programs while cutting versus increasing volume from wherever you were at baseline during cutting. Um, and, you know, the authors did the best they could. So this isn't necessarily a knock against them, but when you read the study, uh, the, the review, I should say, this is not actually a study. There's no empirical uh, examination of this direct topic, um, which is an important you know, thing that we should hopefully get more research on in the future. Um, they, the, the way that volume was calculated was not necessarily super consistent. And there wasn't a really solid distinction between when they were tracking whether or not volume went up, down, or stayed the same they kind of had the comparison between, okay, did they use progressive overload or did they increase volume almost as though they're mutes exclusive or that one is in a way of getting the other. So there, there were some terminology issues. Um, and generally, like if we just kind of, and I can expand more broadly on the topic where I think there's a lot of misunderstandings that do occur um, just when, when you see people discuss this online, but more importantly, just to kind of, square this circle. When we look specifically at this review, 
the conclusion was, hey, you know, it seems like it's probably a good idea to increase volume during cutting based on the limited data we have. And sometimes like a reduction or an increase in volume was, wasn't even established. Like we don't know what they did at baseline. Um, if there were like deloads included, it was considered a, like a decrease. Mm. Like we don't know if they did deloads before. Um, there was a mixture of, you know, observational studies and comparative trials. And it was kind of just this real patchwork attempt at trying to make a conclusion when the literature did not provide the data to make such a conclusion. And my, the suggestion I made uh, when we were doing our audio roundtable with Eric and I is, you know, this actually would have been a great a topic for rather than a systematic review, but a scoping review, which is something that you'll sometimes see in the literature, but people are not as familiar with what it is compared to a systematic review or meta-analysis. A scoping review has a lot of similarities to a systematic review in that you're systematically searching the literature, but the purpose is not to make a conclusion about the findings, but rather to identify the limitations and the breadth of the scope on a topic. So a lot of the times the conclusions in a scoping review are, hey, we don't know X, Y, and Z because of these gaps in the literature, or here is the state of the literature on this topic without saying, and therefore we think it means this. Um, because what we would really need to answer this question would be to, you know, take a group of athletes, you know, give them a questionnaire about what their level of volume is, you know, during the off season, quote unquote, whatever the context is for the study, and then make a, you know, have two, two group allocations where there's a operational 20% increase or decrease for either one or a control group that keeps it the same and they cut and then we see what happens, right? That's challenging to do, of course. Um, and that's, you know, I don't expect that study to get published anytime soon with a decent sample size on a well-trained lifting population, but that's, that's really what we, we kind of need. And the, the topic is one that is actually quite murky and not super clear. And I think the authors of that systematic review having a tough time actually nailing down a clear set of methods to show what they were comparing, what the research question was, and how it was kind of like two blended research questions is almost reflective of the, the discussions you see online outside of the research where people are talking across one another. You know, not everyone has the same perception of what is high volume, what is low volume. Like, for example, in the systematic review, they use the Schoenfeld meta-analysis breakpoints of you know, 10 plus sets is high volume or, you know, five to nine is moderate or, you know, but if we look at research on like how much volume do bodybuilders, for example, actually do, all of them are doing high volume. So when you, when you, not all, the majority of them are doing high volume. So when you talk online, you know, like doing eight sets per muscle group or six sets per muscle group, is that moderate volume or do most people consider that low volume? Right. Well, Jeff Alberts can tell you that most people consider what he's doing low volume, even though by the literature it'd be moderate, right? right? So, so there's that. And then not everyone even tracks volume the same way. So like if we're comparing volume load changes in two groups, is that the same as tracking sets? Well, we'll know, you know, that, that that can change because of changes in strength over time, which if you're losing, you know, 20 pounds or 30 pounds going into contest prep, we should expect there to be changes in strength. That's the equivalent of going down one or two weight classes in, in powerlifting. And we don't expect the 93s to beat the 105s, for example. So there's, there's a lot of facets in this discussion. Um, and I was, while I'm generally not in the camp of automatically and substantially reduce volume down to maintenance as soon as you start cutting. Um, and I think this, this paper kind of argues against that, even though I tend to, if, if you had to put me in, in a camp, which is a bad idea, don't be in a camp, camps are bad. Uh, don't go camping folks. That's the lesson of this podcast is um, I would probably be on, on, on the same side as, as the group that wrote the systematic review, but I don't think it's very good evidence for that, I guess is, is the issue I have with it. And that's not a knock against the, the authors. I think they set forth with a research question that could not be answered with the literature. They did the best they could. And I think that's why a scoping review would have been great. So um, yeah, but it is yeah. what it is, but not a, not a knock. It's just limit, limited, limited literature. Right. Yeah. I think it is interesting how, well, one, how people define low, moderate or high volume, but then also how people just define volume at all. Like to me, I've always said hard sets, right? I mean, that's just mm. how I've counted it. But I remember this isn't a knock on Lane Norton, but I remember, I don't know, five years ago, maybe more than that now, I think he was being trained by, was it Ben Espro? 
And he was like, you know, it, you know, if you don't know your volume load every week, like you, you clearly don't know anything about programming. And I was like, I've been looking for a long time. And I don't know my volume load. And, and I really don't know anybody who does other than like a small niche. And I think people have kind of gone away from volume load because there's obviously issues with that as you have lighter weights and everything. Um, but that was something that at one point I did see more and more talked about. And now it's kind of more hard sets, but it's, it's just interesting how that can vary. And then that makes some of the literature even more confusing. Same thing with like the failure topic you guys talked about, like, you know, mm. oh, it's too failure. Well, what is failure? Because there are yep. several different definitions. And then, you know, to clarify, volume load is a pretty good metric within individual when you're comparing like to like. But the problem of, of using it in a study is that you have to assume that the average strength in two groups is the same, right? Which it, it often is not. So like, for example, like let's, let's, you know, take Lane Norton. If he gets, you know, 10 pounds stronger on a squat and it doesn't change anything else, his volume load will go up. So it can be a useful metric. Um, he would probably also know that his peak load went up. Like, I don't think it's, 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 but if, if you were to compare, and I actually did hear Lane do this, so this is again, not a knock, but it's, it's it, uh, uh, an observation of how we've evolved. I remember him talking about, you know, I, I need X amount of tonnage per week to, to, to see progress in my squat. Yeah. However, Ben Escrow needs this much more. However, you're comparing a, someone who's, you know, approaching a 500 pound squat to someone who's in a mid 600 pound squat in that example. Right. So like that comparison is where, where is where it gets problematic, but for Lane to, to, to look at his own, you know, relationship between the tonnage he needs and when, or when he's progressing or not, that can be useful. So long as you're comparing like to like, like if you're trying to compare your deadlift to your bench volume load falls apart. Right. Because um, again, just for those who are maybe are not knowing what the hell I'm talking about, it sets times reps times load. So any one of those three factors changes, that outcome changes. So you have to kind of compare within person, within lift, within similar rep ranges, or and then use averages over time, or it's really not helpful. But it is nice. It's a sensitive um, metric because it has those three variables. So if you know, you're not changing sets and reps, but your strength is going up, your volume load goes up. And that's kind of how I, I've always used it. Like, hey, you know, like, do you need to increase volume? Only if volume is not increasing, you know, kind of, yeah, kind of right, thing. Right. Right. So, but I yeah, no, I know with those three, you're also, I feel like overlying that would be assuming reasonable intensity. Like, you yeah. know, because obviously you, you could just do lightweight and have an insanely high volume load. That's not going to do anything. That's right. You've got to be comparing like to like, uh, you know, reps, reps and set combinations, hundred percent. So if, you know, if you, if you're powerlifting in your powerlifting phase and you're comparing your squat to your squat over, you know, two months of a similar block, now we got something, but I think, yeah, a, a better way to go. And the way I would operate in modern times. And I, I recognize we're, we're off on, on a tangent now is, you know, have a top benchmark set, whether it's a single, a double, a triple at a six, seven, eight, nine RPE or whatever, run with that as kind of your estimated, uh, you know, one RM on a given lift and then count hard sets from there, you know? And that's, I think that that's, that's probably getting at what we're trying to manipulate and understand a little better. And it's a more descriptive way of looking at the research and especially, or sorry, your data, and especially looking at the research on hypertrophy, which is kind of what this, this question comes down to the relationship between the number of hard sets, like you said, that, that one has done, which in the literature is almost always to failure, which again, what does that mean? Right. It's, it's probably at least an eight to 11 RPE somewhere in there <laughs> in most cases. Um, that, that, that's, that seems to be more closely associated than, than say volume load, where if you're comparing three sets of 20 to three sets of six, we've got studies where those have similar outcomes in terms of hypertrophy, but two to three times the volume in the group that is doing three sets of 20, yeah. uh, even if their strength levels are matched. So that, that, that is the issue when we're doing a comparison between groups in the literature for sure. I saw a comment, I think it was just like a YouTube or Instagram comment, and I don't know who to give credit to, but basically they were saying, you know, Lyle McDonald was saying, oh, in these studies, there's no way that they're truly going to failure, right? And then one of the comments said, okay, so these studies are showing that, let's say, even like a three RAR is equivalent to a, a one or a zero RAR. And if you really think that they're actually not going to failure, then these studies are showing that even further from failure are actually equivalent. So- yep. Right. So then maybe it's actually five is equivalent to like one or two, which makes it even more like if Lyle's right in that regard, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's a funny thing. If, if you come down on the side of, you know, failure is very important. And then you also are like, and, and look at all these guys doing high volume, like that's working because they're not going to failure. 
the same argument unfortunately cuts both ways. So you end up going, oh, hold on. <laughs> That's true of, of, of all of this research. And, you know, so then, then what's coming out and what I'd be really intrigued uh, to see what comes of it. I don't think it's going to make a huge difference purely because of this fact, but I've got some, some really switched on students who are uh, working out of a couple different places who I'm working with both at FAU and then also Martin Ruffalo, uh, who is, you might be aware of works with JPS, but he's also doing his PhD who are trying to do analyses where you're actually strictly making comparisons between different types of failure. So we have the momentary muscular failure versus non-failure and we have volitional failure versus non-failure. And I think that's important um, because that's, that's where it gets sticky right now is there's the definite well, volitional failure could be momentary muscular failure. You know, if you stop on attempting a rep where you fail, or it could be at a seven or eight RPE, you know, or it could be a nine or could actually be what's intended, you know, like a 10 RP, which is typically volitional failures uh, attempting to accomplish, but momentary muscular failure assuming the person isn't like misgrooving or missing the rep. Uh, we don't know the cause of the failure. We just know that they attempted a rep and it didn't occur. So yeah, that, that's, that's a much more clear cut line in the sand, but that's probably only 40% of the studies that are on failure. So, you know, based on the research we've done on RIR, which is that people, you know, are, are underestimating how far they are from failure on average. We can probably assume that that applies to groups, especially in lesser trained groups. So when you've got people training in, let's say, the typical you know, 8 to 12 RM range, uh, and they're going to failure, you can expect probably an average RPE of 8 or 9, you know? Yeah. Um, and a trained group, probably more like you know, a 9 or 10. So the comparisons we have are like actually failing reps versus varying degrees of distance from failure, because the non-failure research is even messier, right? right, right. Um, or we have uh, actually you know, somewhere in a nine to 10 RPE versus somewhere in the three to eight to even sometimes they have like a 10 RPE compared to actually failing in mm -hmm. some studies. So it is, it is a non-homogenous group of research, but the only thing you can conclude is that proximity to failure is not a hugely important variable so long as you're somewhere reasonably close to it. So it's difficult to be in the camp of, oh, this is a really important variable. Um, it, it must be important at some point you know, the whole concept of effective reps, right? But I think drawing a line in the sand of where effective reps are, it's kind of like drawing a, like a, a, a kind of a misty, you know, like thing that's somewhere between like a five RIR to, to onward, you know? Yeah, right. We don't know. So, so I have a question related to that and I don't want to wishy-washy answer because I feel like the, the standard is almost like this, okay, well, you know, the literature shows even up to five RIR and, but you know what, I, I think we should, you know, have most of your training not to failure, but then, you know, maybe you progress up to failure, you do this. So if, and again, clearly this is your opinion because we couldn't say one way or the other definitively. Do you think you or Zordos, any of you guys, if you had your entire training career, same split, same, you know, all of that, but you never went beyond a three RIR, do you think you would be at the same level of development? I think it's almost impossible to know that you're consistently at a three RIR without having done some failure training. That's the challenge. Right? Well, let, let's say, okay, enough that in the first two years, maybe you, you got to a point that you understand where really pushing failure is. And then the last 15 years was. I think from a logistical standpoint, you still should probably cycle in phases where you are pushing close to a high intensity. Um, you know, this is tough because the very first competition I did was not a bodybuilding show, it was a powerlifting meet. So powerlifters are always inherently exposed to low proximities to failure, no matter what paradigm they use, even Shiko, because, you know, in the, in, the, in the peak block, you're doing singles at 90%. Like, right, right. you can't do 90% at a, at a six RIR, <laughs> or it's right. not 90%, right? So, so I think... Um, I think you can absolutely create a program that on average, when you take a group of people will be effective where most of the time you're training at a three or four or even five RIR. Um, I've actually seen data that supports that in trained individuals. So um, that is, it was relatively surprising to me, but at the same time, I don't know if that would apply to all the people within that. I think there's probably some people who respond better to lower volumes and one thing you can consistently say when you look at the meta-analyses on training to failure or not is that it's not a game-changing variable, but the data all lean towards failure. 
So you have non-significant small effect sizes generally that favor training to failure versus not. So everyone's making gains, but it seems like the groups going to failure are making slightly better gains. The problem with that, however, is that if you look at all the meta-analyzed studies, they're training two or three times per week. So right. it's inherently something that is completely different than what you or I or most of the listeners are doing, where they're training four or five days a week. Like there was a 2013 Hackett survey of competitive bodybuilders. All of them were training five to six days per week. I remember the data right. So if we look at like, if I'm going to talk to competitive bodybuilders, which is pretty much all that I talk to, or people who are extrapolating that, that data to themselves, in my mind, I'm only talking to competitors. I understand right. like half my followers don't compete and that's, that's fine. No knock against them, but just I'm a physique sports scientist and a competitor and a coach. That's always my brain tap. Yeah. So I'm going, all right, I, how do I help extrapolate this data on people training half as much as you do? I can't just tell you straight up like, oh, you should probably go to failure, get a small effect size benefit on average. What I have to tell them is, if you're going to do a low volume program, you probably want to push it closer to failure. That's the best I can say on the, on the data that's there. So I think the more you hone in on and the more you get your, your eye focused on just a single set or a single workout, the more failure makes sense. But as soon as you start to go, hey, let me try pushing more volume. Oh, shit. I'm trying to get symmetrical development everywhere. I need to think about my articular muscles, you know, monoarticular muscles, like the short head of the hamstring that I have to do a hamstring curl on. And you're getting away from like your typical, you know, like Ripito S programming where it's like you have the main lifts and you just do them and you progress them over. Like when you're like, okay, I actually have to do four exercises per, per muscle group or three at least, like even a minimalist bodybuilder is doing three times the number of exercises, a minimalist powerlifter. Yeah. All of a sudden now you're like, okay, well, how do I get the requisite volume with all the movements necessary? I can rotate them out to some degree, but I can't go forever without hitting my rectus femoris. So like, you know, this is, I'm just kind of talking out loud here, but yeah. ultimately it comes down to, you're going to be training more than two to three times per week. There are some notable exceptions that train three times a week, but they're notable exceptions. They're, they're not standard. Most people, uh, you know, minimum, like standard kind of like intermediate hypertrophy program, you're doing moderate volume four days a week. And all of a sudden, even that is almost twice the amount of work that we see in these, these meta analyses. So my, my inclination is to go, look, we've got, we've got data that says it still works and it's not a significantly, it's not a significant difference and the difference isn't large. Yeah. And in some studies it, it leans the other way. And we know that other variables can stimulate gains quite effectively based on the volume data. So it's probably paying off and they're not even really going to failure and have these failure studies anyway. Right. So right. <laughs> let's anchor it and then train it a high RPE, but not maximal. And as volume goes up, you assess recovery and you scale it down where needed. And you can go through phases where you do train close to failure. You re-anchor re that where you don't do as much volume. And then we individually adapt that over time. So that's, that's, that's my kind of take on it. Um, I think for the most part, I probably, the, 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 the big question mark here is if you train to that seven RPE all the time, I do think in compound movements, especially you'll get the same or similar amount of growth. If we were to kind of really just nail this down and, and make these comparisons and wave magic wands and the places where the logistics got in the way for the prime movers, yeah. you know, but I, I'm not sure um, that you would necessarily get the same growth out of synergists that might be keying up their, their involvement as you get, you know, fatigue in the main muscle group. Yeah. So tough to say. Um, I think better safe than sorry approach is to include phases of, of high RP training at this stage. I'm um, surprised what you said. Most of it either is neutral or, or favors it. And I, I guess I could be confusing it with the strength literature. Cause I know I've heard yes. sort of say that strength favors, not training to failure. That's actually pretty clear. Okay. Hypertrophy slightly favors training to failure. Okay. Yeah. And then like you said, you know, that slight over how many, you know, years, if it does it add up? I mean, I, I personally like, you know, um, Abel Chabai and, and Brian Borst, you know, we talk all the time. It's, it's very hard to believe that like four or five RAR indefinitely would really be as good, but nobody's done that, right? Nobody's had a whole training career of four to five yeah. RAR. So it's very hard to really, really pin it down. Yeah. And so like, I, I get that, you know, like I, I grew up in, in an era that it was pushed even more than it is in the circles now. So, yeah. but it's, it's one of those things where if you've hung out in bodybuilding circles enough to see things that are taboo, but that no one's ever tried mm -hmm. and then people try it and, and, and it works just fine, if not better, you like, 
you only take anecdotes so far. Like, of course, like how could you be training? Like everyone in the gym goes in there and doesn't train hard, but all those people are plateaued. Right. But there's so many other variables as to why they're plateaued. Like you can get progressive overload at a three to five RIR, you know, but you have to be intentional. You have to track your loads. You have to try going up in weight and seeing if you're actually there, but there are challenges to accurately tracking it. So I think from a logistical perspective, training at a five RIR, even if it did work, is hard to do because it's harder to gauge the further you are from failure. Right. And I'm not sure you're benefiting that much from being at a five RIR in terms of recovery versus a three or a four RIR. So it's just like, it's a similar thing. Both are, are reducing fatigue notably, but one is harder to track when you're there. Right. Yeah. So, so I think, I think in practice, um, it makes sense to probably be training in a, like a zero to four RIR most of the time. Um, if we're talking about like general strength and hypertrophy training, but I do regularly use like singles at something that would be less than a five RIR. Like yeah. if you think about it, like singles at 85% of one RM or 80% of one RM, right. You walk that out and it feels heavy on your back, but you can do, you know, six to eight reps with that. Yeah. And you yeah. do a single, I think that absolutely has benefits. Um, you know, like most of, of Shiko training, which was kind of generally accepted as, oh, this works, you know, yeah. uh, is it like a four to six RIR? until right, you right. get close to competition. Yeah. So Speaking I mean, of, uh, yeah. bodybuilding things that other people won't try. So I, I do some of these like unilateral experiments. So <laughs> I have not trained my left calf in two years and it is the exact same size as my right calf, which has <laughs> ramped up to 15 sets, you know, from six to 15, you know, over the years I've done literally everything. So I'm just going to keep doing it. <laughs> you know, eventually it'll just be you know, 10 years of not training it, but you just don't have calves that grow. I love it. Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah there's nothing going on there. So although mm-hmm. I did Sad. just for like the total naysayers, it's like, it's not like, I think nothing matters. I just think calves are a particular example, but, um, I did something similar with thighs where I took out, I was actually just doing just isolation for, uh, my right. And then my left, I was doing all those same isolations with then light pressing volume. And there was like a pretty clear difference in size after like six Mm -hmm. months. So, um, I want to be clear. I think that's a calf specifically, (laughs) not everything. It's a Dave's calf example. Yeah. (laughs) Um, one thing I want to go back with the increasing volume just real quick. When I first came across Mike Yusertel, it like, this was 2017 and Mm -hmm. I'd seen him talk more and more. And my first introduction to him was seeing his a Facebook post that was recommending higher reps for cutting because it led to higher volume, which is great to maintain muscle. And I was so shocked to read that because it was against everything I'd ever read. It was like, no, you, if anything, you want to cut volume. I don't know if he's changed his opinion on that, but it does. Yes, seem- he has. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, then that might completely just erase my question then. <laughs> but it, <laughs> it, it just, it just, it's interesting because there seems to be a few things with Renaissance periodization. And again, not to knock Mike at all. I, I'm planning on having Mike on in like a week or two, but it seems like, I, I, like when I think of like 3DMJ, I think of like the most, and I know evidence base has almost gotten like too cliche of a term at this point, but like, like I know you've looked at the literature and, and it's extrapolated in the same way that I feel like I would look at it. And mm. then with some of like the Renaissance periodization stuff, I do feel like there's things where I'm most kind of su- surprised by it. Um, and then I guess further beyond that, you have like some of the, I don't know, like, uh, I don't want to say stereotypical bodybuilders, but you know, some people where it's like all like the bro science. And I guess you've had a lot more conversations with like Mike's team and everything. Have you found like that? It seems that they've kind of changed their views, but that was already answered a little bit there. Like, yeah, you know, like um, uh, people are probably well aware that I've had a number of debates with Mike, which are always, you know, handled charitably by him. And something that I always know is that he's, we, we respect each other, even when we disagree, which is something I greatly appreciate. And um, one of the reasons why I, I love what Mike does for that, that specific purpose, or reason, I should say. And to, to his credit, I have seen him change his mind numerous times, you know, like, there, people forget this. There didn't used to be an MAV. Uh, MRV was MAV. You know, there was a time point where he considered, I want to say 2014, 2015, somewhere in there. It's like, well, the most volume you could do and recover and get back to baseline, that's what's best for, for hypertrophy. And even sometimes in some cases, maybe even for strength, uh, like in a volume block or something like that. Um, and, you know, I think due to some of the, my input as well as Greg's input um, and kind of helping conceptualize this, it almost happened like live. The, the remembering that 
the point where you're you're no longer recovering is like typically the point where we see that that's theoretically like not the peak of your gains. It's the point where you're starting to depress things and now you're not progressing, you know? So he, he uses that only as an overload technique now, but trying to get closer to MAV most of the time and, you know, incorporating some elements of periodization, which I think is a much more uh, defensible position. Uh, also, I, you know, I've talked to Mike about, you know, rates of weight gain and he used to recommend faster rates of weight gain than he does now based upon, you know, some of the debates and, and research. And I'm, I'm not taking credit for every time he's changed his mind, but I, I think I was, you know, always appreciative when someone who I can present data to present my argument and there's something they can take from it. It shows they're open-minded and they're trying to find truth rather than trying to be, you know, right all the time. Um, and then, you know, mo most notably, I wasn't super involved in this. It was mostly the other Eric carrying the torch, but um, some of the ideas around needing to cut before you bulk to potentiate gains mm. um, is something that I've, I've seen them change their, uh, his, his position on a fair bit. But yeah, I remember way back in the day, and, and again, this is something that we all got wrong about volume, is when we were thinking about volume load, and we didn't really think about proximity to failure in the same way. I remember Mike saying something like, well, it's, I think we used to conceive of things like there's probably a minimum percentage of 1RM that you need to train with to actually get an effective you know, uh, like yeah, training yeah. stimulus, like yeah. 60 or 70% of 1RM. And right. that's like, if you go all the way back to like Wernbaum and, and Peterson and stuff like back then, that was kind of the, the view, which might be true, by the way. Yeah. Because it like, there might be this, this point where like you're, you're recruiting enough muscle mass and it, you maybe, maybe a decent proxy is like total reps above X percentage of 1RM. I don't know. Don't quote me on that, but it's something that I've conceived of. And that's not an original idea. Like if you look all the way back at like periodization, people would track like number, the, the volume load or number of reps in different intensity bands. That's really common in like Olympic weightlifting and old powerlifting. Yeah. But anyway, I remember a post of Mike, he said something like, why aren't we just like choosing 70% of 1RM or whatever we think is a, and just doing as much volume as we can with it, you know, like going higher is, you know, you know, making, making your, you know, putting stress on your joints and necessarily we don't care about strength going lower is, is, you know, what, junk volume. And I think the difference, I think the reason why you're probably more surprised sometimes by Mike than, than me is I am loath to put something out there unless I have like, like, you know, I, I wake up in the middle of the night and sweats that I got something 5% wrong. Like I, I'm just a big weenie. Right. And, and Mike is, is very comfortable um, publicly theorizing. And I think he's, he's pretty good at, at hopefully getting that across, but you know, maybe, maybe not always. Sometimes it can come across as this is firmly evidence-based, but he's not necessarily citing anything. He's thinking more on his understanding of the current principles, which may not be well-established. Uh, and I just don't do that. And that's not to say that it's better to, to do it my way. Um, but I think it's, if you misunderstand one for the other, uh, it can be like, what, what gives, you know? Yeah. Right. So, yeah. No, I can understand that. I mean, there was a podcast recently, Abel and Brian and I did, and it was, you know, there was like a 10 minute gap that I had almost cut out because most things we speak fairly confidently on. And this was just like mm. total, just like pondering and theorizing on maybe this. And it just sounded like, not like that we don't know what we're talking about, but it was just a lot of speculation. And that's generally not like what I would put out there. Um, but I mean, I think on a podcast, it kind of lends itself to that, but in general, like I would want to make a post like that, but I, so I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think with that whole, you know, the, the reps thing, and maybe we get the volume thing wrong. I would still not be surprised to find that, yeah, I know the literature says, hey, even 30%, as long as it's taken to failure, it can be as effective. But again, short-term versus long-term, my intuition is that I don't know if I believe somebody would reach a peak development only training 30% all the time. I mean, again, I, I don't approve of that. It just... I feel like it, you know, <laughs> you know, that, that's my I don't like it. <laughs> it just, yeah. I, I mean, again, could totally be wrong. I would just, yeah. it just you know, again, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a tough one, you know, like, uh, anecdotes are interesting. And I think anecdotes are, are real important pieces to the overall understanding of how things operate, especially in a space where we, we don't have, like, we don't have like this drug worked or not. Right. So we're, we're, we're dealing in, in, in very murky areas and, and the nature of the research questions we ask um, requires us to, to look at practice, uh, be informed by it and try to figure out the limits and what is necessary versus what is optimal versus what is sufficient. And a lot of I think people struggle with that, you know, like the if 
you're observing the highest level individuals in a sport doing certain things, you can be reasonably confident, but not sure, especially if it's this huge cultural like bias and zeitgeist of like nobody even tries something else, which does happen. But you can be reasonably sure that it's not getting in the way of high performance, right? Yeah. But that's about it, you know? Like the great example, the easiest one is like no one ever eats a regular potato in the IFBB, you know, like that's not allowed until maybe the last 10 years. Like it's got to be a sweet potato. Why? I don't know. <laughs> Brown potatoes or they're white potatoes. They're, they're like white rice, even though it's completely different. It's its own species. It makes zero sense. Right. But we only eat sweet potatoes because clean. Only eating sweet potatoes and not white potatoes is not going to prevent you from getting your pro card. It does. It just doesn't matter. And it creates unnecessary food rules and, and, and you know, restriction. But it's not a barrier. But it might be useful to de-restrict some of the, the, these food choices. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So this is the same kind of thing we've seen as the data on frequency has gotten a little weaker and weaker over time. And, you know, the big thing that people used to freak out about was, okay, we, we've got these meta-analyses showing that training more than once per week is better. So how do all these IPP pros do it? I, the bro split, it must be magic, or, or maybe it's drugs. It's like, A, we're looking at very small effects at all. Like, so this is like volume and intensity have always been the things that produce overload. Frequency right. disorganizes it. So you're being too rigid with your way of conceiving evidence-based information. And that, now as more data comes out, it's like, oh, we're actually observing a volume effect. Like a lot of the high-frequency studies are inadvertently comparing high volume to lower volume. When you control for volume, it doesn't have a large effect. So yeah, all these pro bodybuilders can get away with training once a week because they're still getting sufficient volume. And it's just not one of the big rocks. So yeah, it's a tough one. And I think it's really logistically challenging to train even at a seven RPE regularly on 40% of one RM. That's you, you feel like shit for like the last six reps on high rep sets, oh, yeah. you know? Um, like when you see people do quote unquote widow makers, like 20 rep sets of squats, yeah. that's 60% of one RM, 70% of one RM. Yeah. But most of the time people are able to maintain the same load for three sets of 20. Like, what does that tell you? Yeah. You know? And I tell you what, man, People loved 20 rep sets of squats in the 70s, oh, yeah. 80s, 60s, 50s, and they were not training to failure and they were building monstrous quads. And I guarantee you, they were stopping at like a five RPE on average. Yeah. Because it's still hard. It still feels like crap, you know? So, my, uh, yeah. I don't know. My most traumatic leg days were actually in high school and it was starting with two sets of 20, you know, the whole take your, they say take your 10 rep max, which I think is BS, but I really would take like a 15 rep max. And I mean, Training I personally, squats. yeah, exactly. You know, and these were not five RIR. I, I mean, the last five no, were literally yeah. like waiting, waiting, going to get, I mean, it was horrible. And that was just the first two sets of like a, I don't know, 15, 16 set light workout. So that was, those were awful. <laughs> and yeah. So, you know, eventually and I you, then you, got to the point where it was like, when I came out where I, I saw some of this, this other literature saying you didn't have to do that. I was very happy to take <laughs> the other route. You know, I was like, I would gladly back off a little bit. And, and that's, that's another one of those tough things that makes actually training, tracking failure difficult. You know, it's like, if, if I'm taking interest at rests, then I can just keep going. So it's, 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 it's murky. It's very subjective, but, um, but yeah, man, I, uh, I think it is, it's important for us to not lose touch with what is actually occurring, but also to firmly understand the limitations of what is occurring in the trenches, you know? Um, like I think there are some things that bodybuilders do because bodybuilders do them. And all we can know is that they're not impeding progress. Yeah. Yeah. And then we just have to remember, remember that. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this. So we, we obviously mentioned Renaissance periodization, uh, Steve Hall, it's almost like, he's almost like the natural version of that. You know, he had he talked <laughs> with Mike a lot, but he follows a lot of the same principles. Um, and, and I'm sure you heard this is very big news in, in the community. It was on Joe Rogan a few times that I got trained by Steve Hall. I, I'm sure you must. Have oh, yeah, yeah. Joe's um, always talking about that. <laughs> so um, so I, I made a couple of videos on it recently. But basically what we did was I was like, you know, I haven't had a coach in, in many years. And after mm. 16 to 18 years, depending on when you count my start date, I was like, I, I've done everything. So let's just see. Like, this is one thing I haven't really done is this whole escalating volume week or you know, within a meso and all that. So 
Um, so we did it and I, I actually really enjoyed it because it was just fun again. You know, I had literally done the same mm. routine for two years. So it was, it was fun. Um, I liked talking to Steve more, bouncing ideas off each other. And then I made a big video afterwards kind of explaining everything. Um, but ultimately the conclusion, and I think even he kind of agreed with this, is that as far as we could see, nothing really happened. So uh, when we compared to the previous, what we did was I was like 195 last year. I had cut down just kind of on my own down to like 181. And I said, all right, we'll slowly over six months go up to 195. And we're going to see if it's a better version, right? Because some people are like, oh, aren't you gaining strength? Aren't you gaining size? I said, well, of course, because I'm 15 pounds heavier, right? I have to compare to the same thing. Um, mm. And so I've always had meticulous calipers, you know, muscular measurements, things I've done thousands of times. So while I know there's going to be variation, I, I'd like to think I'm, I'm pretty damn accurate at this point. Um, pictures as well. And if anything, uh, even I think Steve on some of the ones I showed looked like even last year. And the comments in the video also said maybe last year was even a little bit better. So my conclusion was like, you know, don't take this as, as anything with bad coaching. He at 3DMJ, a few guys are people I still recommend. It's more, I just feel like at that stage, just the, you get people think like, obviously like there's the standard misconception that you're just going to keep going up and up. But even after that, I think a lot of people don't realize how much easier it is to maintain. So I say like what I do now would not necessarily get me here. But I train, going back to like kind of like Jeff Albert's example, or even below less than he does, I train three days a week. I average six, well, other than back, which gets 12, I do six sets pretty much to failure one, zero, one RAR per week. And when we started working with Steve, I went from three to five days a week. I went from six sets to ramping up to 11, 12, went from intermittent fasting to eating essentially all day. I went from three meals a day to five meals a day. And I always have good sleep. So um, it, when you hear that, it's kind of amazing that that would not make a difference. But like I, I say, it's like, okay, if you're here and you just, you just keep bumping up against it. Um, so not that I'm telling you anything new, but I, I just mm. wonder if you have thoughts on that, like that even it, like having maintained, you know, people talk about resensitization. Well, I had been sure. on this low volume for years, literally. And mm. still there was just nothing, nothing going there. Yeah. I mean, if you've been training 16, 17 years, what time frame do you need to that see a point positive change? Depends, right? Um, but it, it may be unreasonable to expect anything to happen visually in six months for some yeah. people. Yeah. Um, another thing to consider is you didn't land on, you know, your nutritional and training habits completely by just exposure to other people and, and saying, you know, they're like, fuck it, I'll try it. You know, like, I also know you, you're someone who takes meticulous measurements and you pay attention and you have an eye for detail. I would not be surprised if over time you have gotten closer to something, even if it was influenced by other people, like you gravitate towards things because you have an inclination, they work and you see results, sure. you know? Um, like a great example is when I went and trained low volume with Jeff Alberts and I got smaller, like doing Jeff's program, forced reps, uh, you know, like negatives, uh, doing six to eight sets of my upper body. And he, not just me and him, like it wasn't just my neuroticism. He looked, he's like, bro, like you're getting weaker and smaller in your upper body. It was working for my lower body. Wow. I wasn't aware and of this experiment that you did. Yeah. I was driving down to his place in Stockton from Sacramento in 2000, I think it was 11 or, two, or before my 2011 season. I think it was my 2010 off season. And we went down and I was, I was training with Jeff, um, two upper, we were doing, uh, upper, lower alternating. And I think we trained three days per week. And, um, so I was doing one to two upper body sessions a week and I got smaller and Jeff was wow. like, yeah, we, we should pull the pin here. This is like, I'm glad you're trying this. This is great. Like you're, we're anchoring some things. You're learning some new skills have improved your form and yeah. you know, you, you got more experience, but let's not keep doing this. You know, is that just curious measurements, pictures, visual, visual. Yeah. Visual. And I might, my, my performance was actually going down on my, like I was pushing, I hit some big PRs at the time in RDLs. Like, I think I was doing like sets of six with 365 or something like that. And, um, and that was a significant improvement at the time. Um, but the, my numbers, I remember my, I think my dumbbell shoulder press went down like 10 pounds over this time period. <laughs> yeah. wow. So, wow. so yeah, like it was a, a pretty visible difference. Um, and then a performance difference. And after my 2011 season, I first started experimenting with higher volumes on my upper body. And this is when I finally broke my bench plateau and I finally started to look better up top. 
And I noticed like immediate changes, you know, within the first couple months. So I think, and, and but now it's kind of like I have to maintain a higher level of work on my upper body, and I do notice that it shrinks when I go to lower lower volume. Wow. But my legs, like bro, I've gone through hip surgery, you know, and I've come back doing just the bare minimum, and like I've gotten back to PRs. So wow. uh, it is a, it's it is the the individual differences can sometimes be quite surprising, which is a cool thing I've seen as a coach, and I think the data is starting to demonstrate that as well. And you are not even necessarily the same person over time. So it, it's, a, it's a tough thing. I, like, I guess my main point there was that I was gravitating and moving towards you know, higher volumes. And I saw Jeff and I was like, this guy's fucking stacked. Maybe I got this wrong. I should at least give this a good college try. And I learned like, okay, like maybe there was not just you know, random exposure to things and my desire to like, let's train harder and do more. Yeah. Um, because that's, that's another thing is sometimes people in different camps pigeonhole the other like the it neither one is easy like doing 15 sets at, at a moderate R, rpe is that harder or 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 more taxing or d- like than than yeah. doing because I, I i did max ot for a while which yeah. is you know basically failure at a moderate load and i'm sorry a moderately heavy load with moderate volume and i progressed and plateaued and i tried something else you know um and I've also done, you know, Shaiko and pretty damn high volume programs. And I find them all challenging, you know? Yeah. There, there's very few programs that are like low volume, low intensity, low frequency. It's like, <laughs> right. Well, all right. Well, yeah, that's one of the comments I made. So one, just circle back to the, the time frame. That was a big point Steve and I made and Pascal as well. It's like, yeah, like six months might just not be enough, right? And mm. the second thing I would say is, and I don't know how to explain this scientifically, but there do seem to be enough reports of people who there for some, something over time happens and like they were not growing they're not growing and then they just had like a spurt of growth yeah and, and you don't necessarily know when that's going to come and that's an argument for continue to just keep trying you know rather than giving up absolutely um, and then the last thing there how hard it was and that is one thing i would mm-hmm. say is you know is it harder when you do more sets and i said the actual in actuality for me it was easier the workouts were easier um but because i was working out so much more I would say, you know, if you look at like, um, what is it like a uh, session RP and you guys talk about it and everything, it, it's like per set was easier and maybe even each individual session. But if I said like weekly, like how hard was this week? Yeah. It was harder. If mm-hmm. that makes sense, you know, which is interesting. Yep. I've experienced exactly that. Like I, um, cause you know, I'm not one to, 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 to not try things, mm-hmm. but I also am someone who will try things only once I have a, like, I, I'm convinced of something that this is worth trying. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what happened with Jeff. And that's also happened when I started experimenting with uh, escalating volume approaches. And I did that during my off season before 2019 for a good bit. And I also played with full body, which was, was new for me, even someone experimenting with that. And I, I landed on stuff with full body and I still often do. Yeah. Um, and that was purely from experimentation. I was just like, I was trying to figure out, I, cause I'd established basically, these are the volume ranges that seem to work well for me where I am actually seeing progress. And that the world broke those previous plateaus in my upper body. So what's the most efficient way to accumulate that volume? And I kept landing on full body or things that might as well be called full body that right, like right. for the listener, I'm not training every muscle group every single day, but I'm not restricted anyway. Um, so another thing I experimented with was I was doing like three sets per exercise in one week, four sets per exercise, another week, five sets, and then I'd recycle or, or deload. Yeah. And man, tell you what you do five sets per exercise you're going to need a deload like yeah. every time, you know, <laughs> like yeah. at least I did. Um, and that wasn't necessarily the case. And when I have a more flat volume, I like, I auto regulate my deloads, but the auto regulation when I was going three, four, five, every time was deload time, you know, like yeah. you yeah. increased your volume 40%, you need right. to stop, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, that was very interesting for me to see It's like, you know, one, it was a reminder that like three RER can still be very challenging, you know, especially when you have a lot of sets um, but just, and also one, one of the other big lessons I learned is I was very reluctant to let go of mm-hmm. bench press of pull-ups. And I obviously have an ego with these and, and not that I'm, you know, incredibly strong, but I, I was pretty strong on those, those movements. And it was something that I had in the gym, you know, I mean, the reality is like, I go to a gym that there's some very impressive people and it's stupid for me to still have an ego with it. But mm. it's nice to have something that like you stand out at, right? Like this is something I'm really good at. So now I'm doing like, you know, 
very strict pull downs that, but I actually told Steve, like, I want to drop these things because that's the whole point of this experiment, right? I want to do hundred percent, right. whatever you want me to do. Um, so it was a fun learning experiment, but I'm, I'm, I am surprised to hear that you actually lost size. Like that's fascinating that after so many years, you, you cause we talk so much in the literature, it's easier to maintain. Some people say a third of the volume maintains so that you were pushing that hard. And, you know, that's you know, initially I just told myself, this is just a loss of fullness. Like I was doing more work. It's all good. And then right. when my load started to come down, I was like, ah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's <laughs> kind of puts it in there. Yeah. yeah. He had the reverse experiment though, right? You guys had convinced him, I don't know how many years ago to try higher volume and it didn't really go well for him, right? Yeah. So Jeff has tried it all to get to his credit. And I think to some degree, when you look at what he's doing today, it is, um, the cost benefit analysis of trying to push hard enough to make gains when you're already at nearly the zenith of where you can be. Um, but he definitely in, in his late thirties was still experimenting and he did increase his volume from where he was. There was a time point where he was training like two to three days per week and he'd kind of come. And some of that was also related to just trying to recover from working in auto plants. Yeah. Um, so days I would, now, right? yeah, he's three days a week or four days a week, most of the time now. So one of the two, um, and that depends on if he's in prep and how much stress he's got in his life. And he's, he will actively tell you that he's not like pushing to make gains currently right now, you know, and he okay. goes through phases where he is um, thinking, you know, like it makes more sense for me to do enough to, to stay where I'm at and, and reduce the, the stress burden because he's prepping, you know, but, they, right, right, but right. off season is probably a little different and depends on where he's at. But if we were to rewind 10 years, which is probably the more useful um, discussion, he did increase his volume from where he was with us. Um, and he played with trying even higher volumes for about three months. And he basically had my experience. I don't think he got smaller, but he just, he wasn't progressing and he was always run down. So he was just getting beat up by it. So I think it was something that, you know, like, you know, a comment I made to him was like, Hey, you know, like workload uh, capacity adapts, like you got to give this a good try, but he went for like three months. You know, you'd think, yeah. you'd think you'd have some, some improvements there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. his volume, I do think Jeff, also someone who's incredibly OCD and, and pays attention and tracks things, but also someone who can get stuck in his ways. And so to his credit, he, he was given this stuff a try and, and things like that. Um, There's a lot of things he changed when he initially got exposed to 3DMJ, like, hey, taking creatine, you know, peaking okay. a little bit differently. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, you know, not dieting quite as hard using refeeds. Right. And there was a few things that he like immediately saw, like I'm seeing a benefit from this. So cyclical dieting, um, slightly higher volumes, um, not being necessarily quite as rigid in his exercise selection and uh, training a little more frequently with a little more volume, but not too much. Mm -hmm. And then bringing back a little bit on the intensity, like not, not doing like forced eccentrics or things like that. Like, I mean, he was training past failure. Yeah. Quote, unquote, which is not really a thing in my opinion, scientifically, but it's, we know what that means colloquially. Sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, there was, there was definite some changes for him, but I think he always will be, and probably is benefits best from being a little more on the lower volume spectrum, which means he can and will benefit from training at a higher proximity to failure, the lower training closer to failure. Yeah. English is hard. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it is that that variation is very interesting. And even like I always remember Scott Stevenson asked me one time, this was years back, we we're doing a consult with him. And he said, you know, well, what have you really found has worked best for you? And I asked my clients that too. And the reality is my, my answer was like, I don't really know, which sounded crazy mm. at the time I was 12 years in or whatever it was, because I've, like, I hear some people say, I went to low volume. Oh my God, it was so much better. I went to high volume. Wow. I've been missing out. Genuinely, I have done two to 30 sets for muscle group. And it's just kind of all been about the same. And, and I know that sounds odd, but no, it, really... it doesn't. Okay. I think importantly, Dave, that's normal. Okay. Right. <laughs> We've got a bell curve distribution. Yeah. And, and, and since we have these, these concepts of, Hey, here's probably the volume where, you know, most people respond best and all this stuff. We actually understand that, that most people within like a reasonable changes are going to see similar outcomes. Right. Um, and we've got studies by like DeMoss now where they, they report uh, like people who responded better on one limb versus the other with higher or lower volumes and frequencies. People go both ways, but there are also plenty of people, um, probably the most categ categorically, who in a, in a given reasonable range from moderately low to moderately high will respond the same, mm. right? So 
I think I think there's a couple things that will will coalesce to to give those observations. Is some people are just high responders, but don't respond well to one thing or another, and they're going to have these pretty significant uh, responses. And I do mean a high responder relative to themselves. Like for example, I think my upper body is a high responder to high volume for a guy with above average but not great genetics. So like my upper body is not gigantic by any means. I'm I'm also not delusional to think like I'm just completely average because I'm average in competitive natural bodybuilding. Right. But um, you know, like in the gym, I'm someone who looks looks competent, looks larger than others, and stronger than most people. You know, at WMBF Worlds, I'm a, a sea of of, of face, uh, one of the many sea of faces in the crowd. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's 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 interesting when when we look at the anecdotes online, they are curated. First, we're not going to be listening to anecdotes of people who aren't interesting in some way. Most of the time, they have at least a good physique, and then they're they're smart or outspoken, or they're doing something a little bit different. So all of a sudden, we're not looking at like a, a mean response. And then we're typically looking at people who respond well to something or another, because it's not interesting to see an average guy tell you that, yeah, I respond averagely to most things on average. Right. But that is... <laughs> But yeah. that's probably going to be about two thirds of people, you know. Yeah, no, that. That's, not saying that's you, but that, I'm just saying that that's. Well, that's I think the, it is actually. I think that's the... why you know, like I have no like hopes of my YouTube going like a million subs because it's like, what do I talk about? It's like, hey guys, like if you do this, you'll probably have like a normal response. You know, if your genetics are average, you'll be fine. You know, it's mm -hmm. not. You know, I'm not liver king out here promoting the uh, the dream. So. Uh, so the last thing I want to ask is, is basically on, on this topic. So obviously we, we both, I think lived in almost an identical amount of time and it, you know, things slow down. Now you, I think have more avenues that could get you excited because you compete. And, and so there are more ways to improve. Whereas to me, it's like, mm. is there more muscle mass, right? Like I'm not like, can I pose yeah. better? Or can I get the tanning better? Stuff like that. Uh, but I would still ask at this point, what is getting you excited to train? Are there things that you want to try that, are, you know, Hey, maybe there's a little something here that gets you amped up. Yeah, it could be completely delusional, but I, I think because I've had those spurty experiences in my career where I, you know, like I had my, my novice gains where everyone gets that initial spurt and my, my physique changed from a skinny dude to a reasonably muscled skinny dude. Um, and I found you know, I remember when I first started, I thought I had great genetics and now I think I have average genetics. And then I know the reality is somewhere between the two because I'm comparing against the other people on the on-base gym at Fort Gordon when I first started the thing right. versus now I'm comparing it to professional natural bodybuilders. Yeah, right. I'm comparing myself to Jeff Alberts and Alberto Nunez like on a weekly basis. So I think um, I know that I'm somewhere in, in the middle. So I had that initial spurt that was very motivating and kind of was how I bit the bug because I made some rapid progress. Um, and then I have had spurts where I've figured things out and because I am interested in both strength and hypertrophy, I'm, I have more opportunities to identify things that work for me, you know? So I recently squatted 500 pounds back in 2021 for the first time. Oh, nice, um, man. Yeah. So, and, and that was something I've been working on for a long time. You know, you guys had the competition years back. Correct. You know, like pre hip surgery, I got up to 495 in 20, like 13 or 2015 or something like that. I can't quite remember, but I did um, 491 on the platform uh, for the first time back in like 2014, I think, or 2015. I can't quite remember. So being stuck there and then, you know, it's only 10 pounds. That's probably what people are thinking, like, you know, 227 yeah. versus yeah. it's five kilos, right? But it was uh, to make that progress required some changes in the way I programmed, like doing regular singles on top lifts and increasing their frequency and, and peaking them and tapering them, making them part of a periodized plan. That was a big game changer for me. Um, and I recently, for the first time I deadlifted to, uh, 570, geez, what is 260 kilos? I can't 572 or five, something like that. Um, and I had been plateaued around like 550, 556. So I, I did that in 2020. Um, and my bench has been relatively steadily progressing. Um, yeah, I, I put up, uh, I think in 2017 fat touch and go, I put up 363, but paused recently at a lower body weight. I put up uh, 155 kilos, which is like three, I don't know. It's like 350 ish. I, I can't, I can't math right now. Yeah. Nice. But, I didn't realize that. I mean, I, you know, I follow you on Instagram, but I'm not like on there that much. So I wasn't following your list. I didn't realize that you were that far ahead. That's awesome. And I don't post them that often either. So it's, yeah. it's not, it's not like, uh, 
So the, the last two powerlifting meets I've done, uh, the one previously I had a 10 kilo PR comp, comp PR in, in deadlift. The last one was a meet in my garage because it got canceled due to COVID. I didn't get to go to nationals, mm. but I put up a meet PR on both um, squat and bench by uh, five kilos on both lifts. So I think for me, the fact that I'm seeing, and those feel spurty, like, you know, back in the day, a five kilo increase on a lift would be like, that's just the next meet I did. Yeah. And I only, and it was four months later, you know, this is right, like right. <laughs> four years later. Right. Yeah. So my, my, a, my perspective is shift. So when I see that, I'm like, oh, okay, my changes in my programming and, and it broke a four-year plateau. Yeah. It may be a false association. Maybe it just takes that long to actually see the gains, but it's not like they were, they were doing this and then I hit a higher peak and then right. it's just random. It was more like, you know, like yeah. that. So I had something kind of like, and I, I really, I, I honestly was doing like kind of the same thing. So it wasn't even like a programming thing, but two years ago I did uh, 45 pounds attached to me for pull-ups for 14 reps. And then like literally That's two awesome. years later, I got it for 15 and it's like, Hey, one rep, <laughs> you know, but it was a PR. And then yep. I think bench was, I, I don't do like one rep maxes anymore really, but um, mm -hmm. bench 225 for 14 forever. And then yep. I got 225 for 16. And I was like, I, I honestly don't know why but it happened mm -hmm. so i'm just cool you know it's just kind of yeah happens, so. um yeah. so so yeah so so for one i think the fact that i do go back and forth between focusing primarily on strength or or size that could be slowing down my progress in both to where i still have gains to make yeah um i don't think it's doing <laughs> it much yeah. so i think they're closely related but at the very least i am still seeing progress my 2019 uh performance on stage was was pretty motivating to me um that was a good bit leaner than I've ever been. And I was more symmetrical, peaked better, larger, probably objectively. We're talking like, if you compare it to my last season, six or seven pounds more muscle, but of course it was eight years later. So, wow. you know, um, and I thought it was, I don't, I thought I heard somebody mention, or I thought it was maybe you like, maybe two or three, but you think six or seven pounds more muscle on stage. So seriously, it's, it's, it's a tough one, man. So like I competed heavier in 2009 and then I competed slightly lighter in 2011, right. but I was incredibly stressed and jacked up in 2009. I think most of that was like edema, you know, okay. when I was at, what I competed like 180, 183. Okay. And then in 2011, I competed like 174. Um, and okay. then this time around I competed like 176. So it was, but in 2011, like if you look at me, I didn't, I, I was a lot leaner in 2019. So okay. if we're talking 1% body fat, 2% body fat, then we're, you know, three, four pounds, something like that. Yeah, so yeah. it's a difficult comparison, Sure. but um, if we assume 2011 was a more realistic stage weight, that's not from, you know, like water retention or, or right, stress. Right. Yeah. I'm two pounds heavier and maybe 1% body fat or 2% body fat leaner. How many years into lifting were you in 2011? Seven. Okay. So, okay. Then that makes sense. Cause that's one of the things I say all the time is that people are like, Oh, but like Steve Hall made progress. This person made progress. I'm like, yeah, there's a huge difference between being seven years into lifting and being 15 years into lifting. So if Correct. you were seven years in and competing, then, then that I wouldn't question that at all, that you could have still put on six or seven pounds of stage weight. Sure. Yeah. 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 And I think, um, yeah, I mean, I hate the, the the meme kind of comment of, you know, five years and you're done because there's yeah, so many right. assumptions baked into like that everything went perfect that period and it, it right. never goes perfect, you know, and I, I think the there's, there's also a big difference between gaining 90%, 90% of the muscle mass you're going to gain and being like, logistically, I'm done mm -hmm. versus getting to 98% of it, or I think like most competitive natural bodybuilders who stick with it long-term get to, but every percent you get over like 90%, and I'm just throwing random numbers out here, it is that much more impressive because you're now moving above like what most people are used to, you know? Right. Yes. So just real yeah. quick, I, I, for whatever reason, stuck in my head, a quote of yours, I don't know, years ago, you said, powerlifting is basically signing up to slowly degrade your body over time. <laughs> Do you still believe that? Uh, I mean, I think if, if I'm, I was probably being somewhat facetious when I said that um, maybe I had recently been injured and I was salty, but I would say that competitive sport at any high level for as long as you do it, you are 
probably unless you are purposely holding back from what you think you could push to mm -hmm. because what performance is is pushing the limits of your own human capability um you know like you would probably be better off just being an active recreational trainer right. in terms right. of injury risk right so yeah you, you, like i don't know any power lifters who had a whole career and never got injured you know yeah, I see Lee Simmons when he was alive, and it's like, you know, no, this this is safe, and he's got like eighty pec tears, and you know, it's just, I don't know anybody who, like you said, who's successful long term powerlifters who are not pretty beaten up. Yeah, and I, I do know some recreational lifters who train for like general strength and size, uh, who have almost never had a significant injury. Like, like Jeff Alberts is a great example. You know, yeah, yeah uh, he's a calf tear. Yeah. Um, you know, right. You, I mean, you train 30 years and get a calf tear and that's it. Yeah. It's pretty good. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, um, but I think it's probably safer than being sedentary and not doing anything, you know? Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's yeah, an inverted view there, right? Right. Yeah. As you obviously know, it's one of the safest activities, right? Just bodybuilding and weight training, you know, compared to yeah. some sports out there. So, oh man. Yeah, well, thank you so much as always for taking the time. We will have a link to the charity below and where can people find more of your stuff? Well, just want to say big, big appreciation for having me on. I love the way you think. Uh, I love that you're, you're, you're critical and open-minded at the same time. It's, it's a rare combination. So honor to be back. Uh, for anyone who's interested in hearing more of my and our stuff, you can check out 3dmusclejourney.com. That is the uh, number three, the letter D, then musclejourney.com. And from there, you can find links to mass, my books, podcasts, blog post the only other only other spot to, to listen to me ramble would be iron culture with myself and omar which you can find on all platforms so yeah thanks again man my pleasure thank you